Um, I just want to ask, if you, if you prayed that prayer uh, just now, we'd love to visit with you after service today. Uh, we actually have something we'd like to give you. And so if you, uh, as Pastor John was sharing, if you um, agreed with that and prayed that, um, please make sure that you come and see him or me after the service today. And uh, as I said, we have something we want to we give to you and want to encourage you in that decision uh, that you made. This morning, if you've got your Bible, let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4, we've been going through uh, the book of Hebrews over the last several weeks and uh, looking at this letter that we don't know exactly who wrote, but we know it was written to um, the Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians who had uh, turned away from the, the law, turned away from the Old Testament and the sacrifices and actually put their faith in Jesus as the apostles were preaching. And they are going through hardships. They're facing persecution. Later on in the book of Hebrews, we're going to read about some of those hardships that they're facing. They're being uh, sawn, sawn in two. Uh, they're being cut open. They're being uh, killed for sport. Um, they're being, stuff is being stolen from them. And so they're facing all kinds of persecution. And as a result of that, they're considering turning away from this new faith and just going back to the old way, going back to uh, the way of the Jewish faith. And this letter is being written to them as an, an encouragement. And it's a reminder to them that Jesus is better. Jesus, this new way that God has opened to us through him, is better than the Old Testament. It's better than the prophets. It's better than the angels. It's better than Moses. It's better than the Old Covenant. Jesus offers us a better covenant. And so Jesus is better than any high priest. He's better than anything. And so he's encouraging them, keep your faith in Jesus. Don't let these hardships, don't let these trials, don't let these difficulties cause you to doubt that faith that you put in Jesus. It's true. Even if it doesn't feel true or look true, it is true. And so don't turn away from that faith. And last week, we started a section that starts back on Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 3, where he goes through this Basically, these two chapters, Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, are referenced back to the Old Testament. Psalm 95 is where we referenced it from last week. And so if you've been, not been a part of the other services and you want to go back and listen and uh, kind of put all these pieces together, because there will be times today I'm going to refer back to things. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I apologize for that, but I'm limited in the time I'm given here in service. If you don't want to stay here all afternoon then uh, I, I just kind of have to reference things that I've already said. So those are available for you online from our website, from our, our podcast. You can listen to those and try to put all those pieces together. But last week we learned that he says, when you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. This has been the warning that we've had throughout the, the book, and we're looking back on the Old Testament. When you hear God's voice, don't disregard it. Don't ignore it. Don't disobey it. Because here's the thing. If we disobey it, we open ourselves up for the enemy to have access to our lives. We open ourselves up for deception, to drift away from the truth that we've already heard. So we need to be hearing God's voice regularly through his word, through his spirit, through his leaders, through his body. We need to hear that word. We don't want to overemphasize the works that we do, the good things that, that we're told to do in the scripture. We don't want to overemphasize people and the need for people in our lives, but neither do we want to neglect those things. And he's going to really build on that as we go through chapter four today, and it's, it's connected. 
You have to remember, this, this book that we hold in our hands is a connected book. It was written over 1,600 years. It was written by about 40 different men. We believe all of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things. And as you look at it from front to back and as you read through it, you see God's plan of revelation of himself and what he wants to do. And it all points to this. It all points back to what Pastor John said today, the relationship God desires to have with us. And you're going to see that connection in today's reading especially because the, the author of Hebrews is going to take the Sabbath rest. If you remember back to the days of creation when God rested on the seventh day, he's going to link that to the Old Testament, to the rest that God promised to the Israelites, to what he wanted to give them and how they failed to enter that rest. And then he's going to give us this uh, idea of the rest that God has for us today. And so let's read it and then we'll take some time, uh, as much time as we can to work through it. So Hebrews chapter four, we're gonna actually read the whole chapter. It says verse 14 up there, but uh, we're gonna read all the way through verse 16. So God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared, this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. The Old Testament, these old believers. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger, I took an oath, they will never enter my place of rest. Even though this rest has been made ready since he made the world, we know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. Referring back to Genesis and referring back to Psalm 95. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us 
when we need it most. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help me as we as I share your word today, and I pray that you would help us to hear and receive the truth of your word and to apply it to our lives today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting that we're talking about this idea of rest on Labor Day weekend, when Labor Day is a day that's set aside to honor laborers in our nation, those who work hard, and they get a day off to rest from their labor. But what we have to understand is to, to think of rest in that way, meaning you know just kicking back, sitting on the beach, feet up, is an oversimplification of what the author's talking about here. To think that this rest that he's referring to is the promised land is really not what he's talking about, okay? He ties it back to God's plan of creation. God rested on the seventh day. And when God rested on the seventh day, he instituted this idea of a Sabbath day with the Ten Commandments because he wanted his people to understand something. Okay, and it wasn't, the Sabbath day was not instituted just to give a break. It wasn't just a physical thing. It wasn't about if you just work hard seven days a week and you never take a day off, you'll burn out. You'll just get exhausted. That's not what it was about because God wasn't exhausted when he finished creation. So that's not what he wanted them to learn. God did not cease from all activity either. I mean, there are scriptures that we've, we've read already in Hebrews that said God sustains everything he created by his command. Colossians 1 says he existed, Jesus, before everything else, and he holds all of creation together. So if God literally ceased from all activity on the seventh day of creation, it would have all imploded. I mean, his very existence, his activity, he he didn't just stop completely. And so when we understand, or if we want to understand the Sabbath day, we have to wrap our minds around what is he trying to teach us through the Sabbath? When the people of Israel came out of, the prom- or out of Egypt, they were not headed for the promised land. They were headed for Sinai. They were headed for an encounter with the living God, to be a nation, a kingdom of priests for him, to walk in relationship with him. The people didn't want it. They didn't have the faith for it. The reason they didn't have the faith to enter the promised land is because they didn't have the faith to be this kingdom of priests, this holy nation that God wanted them to be. It wasn't about the promised land. I mean, if this rest was the promised land, then the next generation that Joshua led into, they would, that would have been the rest. But he refers to it here and says, that's not the rest I'm talking about. So for us to look at this rest and think what he's talking about is heaven someday. No, that's not what he's referring to. He's referring to this relationship with God that you and I have been called into right now. Coming into this place of rest And if we learn to not only enter that rest, but live in that place of rest, then heaven will just be the next step in the journey. But the problem is if we don't understand it and we don't live in it and we don't walk in it, heaven may never happen for us. See, there are are so many people that pray a prayer and say, I want to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven, but they don't want to spend any time with him here on earth then you don't understand the message of salvation. You don't understand what God has done for you. 
I mean, you're afraid of the idea that after you die, you might spend eternity in hell and you don't want that. And so you're just hoping by saying this prayer, you'll escape that. That's not salvation. Salvation is repent. You are headed for destruction. The decisions you were making before you met Christ were not the right decisions. Turn from your life, turn toward him, and then walk with him the rest of your life. And that's what we've been talking about as we've, we've kind of gone through this, this book of Hebrews so far. And so this rest, this idea of learning that God is our source. God is our provision. You know, if I... I mean, I have to work seven days a week, Pastor Tom, because I gotta earn that extra overtime because I gotta earn money. No, God is your provision. You can take one day, and here's what we've done to the Sabbath day. Go to church Sunday morning and live the rest of the day however we want. And we call that the Sabbath. The Sabbath was about positioning our hearts and minds to remember who God is, that he's our source. He's our supply. I don't have to work today because God's going, God is my provider, not my job. And the Sabbath doesn't have to be Sunday. It doesn't, but one day a week, what God is saying is you've got to refocus yourself and remind yourself who I am. Remember the warning he gave them when they went into the promised land? When you go into the promised land, don't forget who God is. Don't start raising crops and think we did this for ourselves. No, Have a Sabbath day. Have a Sabbath year. They were even commanded every seven years not to plant crops. God will give you enough in the sixth year to provide for you till you reap the harvest in the eighth year. Take that seventh year off. And even a step further, in the 50th year, celebrate a year of Jubilee, and for two years you're not gonna plant crops. We have got to remember God is our source. There's another thing that he does in this chapter that we have to pay attention to before we get, I've got four things I wanna share with you, but before we get into there, I gotta lay this groundwork. He takes the word faith and unbelief and obey and disobey and uses them interchangeably because they are interchangeable. If you claim to have faith in God, but do not obey him, you do not have faith in God. Faith in God, as James tells us in James chapter two, isn't faith unless it produces results. And so our good deeds, our actions, prove our faith in God. Those words are used interchangeably and as you read back through the chapter, you'll see that. The idea that you gotta keep in mind is that good actions can be an act of the flesh. If you remember at times in the the scripture, you know, you can pray and read your Bible and go to church and give and do all of these good things that are in the Bible and it can be an act of the flesh. If I'm doing it to secure my position with God, God, I'm doing these good things because I wanna be in good standing with you. That's an act of the flesh. But if I do these good things as a result of the position I have by faith in Christ, that's a work of the Spirit. But the problem is they're the same things. They're, they're prayer. They're reading the Bible. They're giving. They're all, I mean, the, the actions are the same. The motivation is the difference. And if I'm doing it to earn my position with God, it's a work of the flesh. If I do it because of my position with God, then it's an act of the Spirit. 
That make sense? Hope it makes sense. So what do we do? What's this passage tell us we need to do if we're gonna enter this place of rest? Not heaven, but this place where we, we really cease from labor, toil in the Lord. The first thing he says is, let us fear. Now I know that you're like, dude, let us fear. Perfect love casts out fear. We don't need fear. Yes, we do need fear. And he tells us right here at the beginning of this passage, we should be really afraid that some of us might not enter this rest. We should tremble with fear, he says. Just because you have heard the message of salvation, it's not automatic that that's just gonna play out in your life. Okay? We have to come to a place where we realize just because I hear the word doesn't mean I'm gonna bear fruit. I've gotta do something with the word that I hear. Now, when I say we have to, f- to fear, this should not be a paralyzing, discouraging, condemning fear, as if somehow you and I are hang- dangling over hell by a string and God is just looking for one excuse to cut that thing so we drop. No, that's, that's the wrong type of fear. That's taking fear to an extreme level. But neither should we say, once I said this prayer, I'm good. I can do whatever I want and it no longer matters. Because once I'm saved, I am always saved. Now that would be incorrect also. Right here we're told that there should be this fear, there should be this sober judgment. All throughout the scripture, the apostle Paul warns us about about these things. Don't receive God's grace in vain. Pay attention, Jesus says, to how you hear. Those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. It doesn't just mean with your ear. It means you hear his teaching and you put it into practice, you're gonna get more understanding. But if you hear his teaching but you don't put it into practice, even what you think you have will be taken away from you. We have to be diligent with what we've been given. There has to be this sense that even after I come to faith and even after I start preaching to others, I could still be disqualified. That's the words of the Apostle Paul. I mean, if Paul, who is seeing visions and praying for handkerchiefs and it's being laid on people and they're being healed and he's got all of this understanding that Peter says, we can't even understand it. If he has to worry that he might be disqualified, that type of fear just keeps him on track. I want you to think about lions. I don't think there's any lion or tiger shows at the fair this year, but in years past, there are these tiger shows or these lion shows, and those are ferocious beasts. I don't know if somebody offered you money to jump into a cage with them. How many of you would sign up for that? Um, Hopefully, you'd be afraid. Even people who work with them have a healthy fear of them, knowing if they let their guard down, they could be dinner. And that thing could just be playing, but because it's so much bigger and so much more powerful, that play can result in your death. I don't know if you've seen the video recently that has circulated on CNN about the lady in China who got out of the safari and was attacked by a tiger and was actually uh, killed by this tiger. She got out of her car in a safari because of an argument with her husband, came around the car and was pulled away, literally pulled away by by a tiger. She needed to have fear. (laughs) Apparently, her judgment was skewed by that argument, and she lost all sense of fear. 
Now, she might not have been afraid about what was going to happen to her. Maybe she didn't feel any fear from those tigers. But guess what? It was still real. And so you don't have to be afraid that you're going to fall away to actually fall away. We've got to remind ourselves, hey, I need to be sober. I I need to pay attention to this stuff. I can't just live my life haphazardly however I want. I need, to, I need a healthy fear. It should not be, I'm going to say it again, a paralyzing fear, condemning, oh, I'm such a terrible wretch. No, but it should be a healthy fear in our lives. If we don't have that healthy fear, we won't do number two. Not only are we supposed to fear, but we are to work diligently. Now, If I'm not afraid, if I have no fear that I'm going to miss out on this rest that God has provided for me, then I will not work diligently. If I have no fear of starvation, then I will not go to work and get paid so I can buy food. Does it make sense? It's those healthy fears. And maybe fear is not a good word for us to use in our society, but we have to have this, this idea of a healthy fear in our lives to get us to work diligently. Your translation, as we read today, might say we have to do our best to enter this rest. Some of them say we have to make every effort to enter this rest. Um, literally, that word means we have to give due diligence to this. If we're going to enter this rest that God has prepared, this this relationship that God has that he wants to have with us, it's going to require effort, but not an effort of the flesh as much as it is an effort of the spirit. As as I was putting this together, I'm like, Lord, you really got to make this make sense because it sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. We have to rest, but we have to work. But look at the way Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 1. By his divine power, God has given us everything that we need for living a godly life. Praise God. I have everything I need to live a godly life. Praise God. I've received this because I come to know him, and though he has called us by himself by means of his marvelous glory and grace and excellence, and because of his glory and excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. These promises enable you, me and, me and you, to share God's divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by our human desires. Well, praise God. So make every effort to respond to these promises. There's obviously an effort that has to be applied you know, if you think that you're just going to wait and develop a prayer life when you, you feel like praying, it, it's not going to happen. Your flesh will always fight against that. If you think you can just wait to get in the word regularly when you, you know, whenever you mature and, and God just gives you the, the faith to get in there. No, you, you, you've got to do this. These are the efforts that have to be applied, not because I need position with God, but because I have position with God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, He says, so dear friends, while you are waiting for these things, the end of the world, to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives. So many times we pray, oh Lord, I need your peace. I need your peace. And you know the Bible says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Let it. It doesn't say pray for the peace of Christ to rule in your heart. It says let it rule in your heart. You know how he tells us to do that? Don't be anxious for anything, but pray. Put your confidence in God. 
Live in peace with all men as much as it depends upon you. Make every effort to be found living peaceful lives. That doesn't sound like just kick your feet back, sit there with a, a cold soda or an iced tea and just chill. We're not just gonna float into the promises that God has for us. Yeah, he's given them to us and everything is ours through Christ. You don't have to do anything to earn it, but you do have to do something to lay hold of it. The apostle Paul says, I haven't already obtained all this. I forget everything that is behind. I forget my past mistakes. I forget yesterday. I forget my failures and my fears, but I press on to lay hold of that which for Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. It's going to require effort on our part. And I fear in America, we've preached this gospel that just says, you know, just attend a revival service or just go to here or go to there. Just get this book or go and get this or just do whatever. We need a people that will just lay hold of what God has laid hold of us for. We do not try to earn our salvation, but because of our salvation, we put our confidence and our trust in God. Most of the effort that is, is needed is right here in our heads, okay? Romans chapter 12, verse two. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Number one, you need to change the way you think about who you are because who you were before Christ is not who you are now. And the way I'm behaving right now doesn't necessarily depict who I am who I am is hidden in Christ even while I'm working on the faults and flaws in my life and working my salvation out. That's not an excuse for me to just be mean to people. It's not an excuse for me to live however I want and do whatever I want, but it, it does set me free from the idea that I have to carry this shame and guilt and condemnation. That's not who I am. And so we have to change our mindset about who we are. We have to change our mindset about who others are in Christ Jesus. That's why we're told to forgive each other the way Christ forgave us. That's why we're told these things in scripture because that's not who we are in our position with Christ. Hebrews chapter four, what we just read says this word of God is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts between joint and marrow and it exposes the things in our hearts. We diligently get in the word because the word exposes what needs to be removed from our lives. Does that make sense? If we are not in the word, we will be deceived by other things, other voices, other people, other ideas, what we think we heard. Even just yesterday, I, 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 saw, I saw on Facebook a quote that someone had that said, I'm so grateful that God's grace is new every morning. And I thought, I don't know that, does the Bible say God's grace is new every morning? I know it's mercy is new every morning, but there's a difference between mercy and grace. But that's just a subtle thing, but it shows us how easily we can just deceive ourselves and think, well, you know, I think God's word says that, you, don't, you better not think what God's word says. We better know what God's word says. And so we diligently get into this book. And when it exposes something in my life, I don't have to go, oh God, I'm such a wretch because it's not my position. But when it exposes it in my heart, I confess it. I say, Lord, this has no place in my life. I'm your son. You've called me to live as an heir. You, the, the, you need to remove this from my life. Get this out of me. 
Not make excuses for it, but get it out of my life. That's gonna take effort. It's gonna take us being in the word. It's gonna take us being in prayer. It's gonna allow the Holy Spirit to, to interact with us through the word of God, to meditate on it, to read it. The people of God in the Old Testament, remember they didn't enter the rest. Why didn't they enter rest? Because of unbelief and disobedience. Their unbelief led them to disobedience. So if we're gonna have faith instead of unbelief and obedience, where does faith come from? Faith comes from, Romans 10, 17, hearing the word. Not just, you know, reading it to check it off my list. Because here's the thing, you can read this book every day and never be changed by it. You can read this book and, and condemn the world. Look how terrible the world is. It doesn't even line up. And here's the craziest thing. We try to make the world conform to this book. And most of us aren't even conformed to it yet. How in the world are they going to conform to it apart from that? It doesn't sound like good news. We have got to get in this book to make every effort, every effort to enter this place of rest. The third thing that he tells us to do, not only should we fear that we might miss it, miss the rest, but we, and we work diligently to enter that rest, but then we hold firmly to what we believe. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. Remember the passage of scripture I read from the beginning today about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says, I preached the truth to you. You heard the truth. Now, cling to it. In John chapter 17, when Jesus was praying, he said, Lord, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. See, what happens is you hear a message or you read a book or you get, listen to a sermon or you read something in the Bible and the Holy Spirit moves on it in your heart and you're like, yes, that's truth. And, and, you, and then we pray or we come to an altar and we shed a tear and we're like, yes, God, apply the truth to my life. And then we walk out these doors or we go on with our day. And all of a sudden, our emotions start telling us that's not true. Or our actions or the actions of others start showing, ah, well, that's not true. Yes, it's true, and we hold firmly to it. Remember these people? Remember these people who put their faith in God and they're being cut in half? They're being fed to the lions? They're being burned in the Garden of Nero for his sport? I mean, they're tempted to say, I don't know if this is true after all. I mean, if this is true, why is my life turning out this way? This thing is true, and you cling tightly to it. Too many Christians walk around like this. And we hold the truth loosely. How do I feel today? What, what's going on today? You cling tightly to that. Please don't sit because I think because I sit here that every day I just wake up and birds are singing and things. No, some days I have to, to tell myself this is what's true. And we cling to what is true. Truth is a weapon. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we use truth, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people, me included, from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. I do war with my own mind because God is transforming me into a new person by changing the way that I think. And here's the thing. The strength to do this is not my own willpower. 
The strength to do this is not because I'm a disciplined person. I mean, by nature, I'm a disciplined person. I love to run. I run even when I don't feel like it because I just tell myself I need to if I want to reach a goal that I'm headed for. So by nature, I'm just disciplined. But can I tell you something? It doesn't matter whether you're a disciplined person or an undisciplined person. Once you come to the cross, it no longer matters because now he is the author and the finisher of your faith. It's his discipline that you need. And That's why the fourth one is let us come boldly to the throne of grace. The throne of our gracious God, excuse me. Let us come boldly to the throne of our excessive God. Why? Because you don't have the willpower to do this. You don't have the strength to do this. I just listened this week to a sermon by um, the guy that uh, passed away, Teen Challenge guy, Wilkerson, David Wilkerson. It was called, Why Don't Christians Pray? And he, he's, he, he unpacks some reasons why we don't pray and it's just mind-boggling that we have all of these promises and we have the God of heaven that says, you know what, my ear is bent to you and if you just call on me and we try everything to fix our problems, we try everything and we don't cry out to the one who can set us free from whatever we need. And for the most part, we don't pray. We don't pray on our own. We don't pray corporately. We just don't pray. And yet the God of heaven is like, if you would just call me, I, man, I just want to be here. And so the writer here says, guess what? You need to come regularly to the throne of our excess of God, our gracious God. God is not up in heaven waiting to condemn you for not coming yesterday. He's not up in heaven to say, hey, you you didn't keep your last three appointments with me. He wants you to come today, right now. Now is the day that you can come boldly before his throne and let him be excessive on you. And he tells us what you're gonna get. You're gonna get mercy and you're gonna get grace every time you come to the throne. That's what you're gonna get. And we're gonna talk about that in a second, but I wanna give you a couple scriptures about this excess of God that we have because in Ephesians chapter three, Paul says, all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. There's an asking that still has to happen. There's an asking that has to happen. We actually actually have to come to the throne of God and ask. Romans chapter eight, since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? It's almost like God is sitting up in heaven with this entire load of stuff that he just wants to start dumping into your life just waiting for us to come and ask to come and seek to come and knock and we'll receive what's he say first we'll receive mercy what is mercy if you remember in the old testament the tabernacle remember he's talking to the good jewish people the mercy seat of god was that place in the holy of holies where every year the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat so God would not have to annihilate the people for their sins. It covered them. Because mercy, I mean, God's wrath against sin is to, uh, it just, boom, annihilate it. And the only thing that holds back his, his judgment on sin is mercy. 
and blood has to be applied for there to be mercy. Something has to die. The wages of sin is death. And every year that they would sacrifice that animal, there was a constant reminder of their inability to measure up and the needing for blood. But here's the thing. Jesus, as we're gonna read again and again and again and again and again again throughout the book of Hebrews, sacrificed his blood once for all time. And he didn't put it on some earthly mercy seat. He took it into heaven where there is a mercy seat of God in the throne room of God and he applied his blood once and for all time on that mercy seat. And so every time you come to his throne room, you are seen through the blood of Jesus Christ and no more blood needs to be applied. But here's here's the kicker. We still have to ask for mercy. We still come and receive mercy. If we're not coming to the throne room, we're not receiving mercy. And so then you know what happens? We live in guilt We live in shame. We live in condemnation. And that stuff drives us even further away. I can't go before God. I don't deserve it. Absolutely, you don't deserve it. But guess what? Go, because you need mercy. And the moment you walk into his presence, wherever you are, in your car, in your living room, in this room, you get mercy. Mercy. Not only do we get mercy, but we get grace to help us when we need it most. You know what grace is? It's an enablement. We have changed grace in our society, in the American church, to be God's grace. You know, I can live however I want. Thank God for his grace. Every time I make a mistake, we're not really thanking him for his grace. We're thanking him for his mercy. It's his mercy. It's the mercy of God. It's the blood of Christ that actually I should be thanking him for when I make mistakes. His grace is a power. His grace is an enablement. His grace is the power to stop doing that. I go to his throne because I recognize I can't stop being me. I can't stop losing my temper. I can't stop being unforgiving. I can't stop slandering. I can't stop doing all of these things I do. So I recognize I need to go to his throne to get mercy and grace. That empowerment to live it out. Timothy, first, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what we read this morning, whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his, says special favor here, that's the word grace, charis in the Greek, grace on me and not without results. I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working. Now, I don't know about you, but if I today stood up here and said, I work harder than all the other pastors in Huron, some of you would be like, well, that's a pretty proud statement to make. But that, in essence, is what the apostle Paul's saying. But he's got such an understanding of grace. I go to the throne of God, I get grace, and it proves itself in my life. The the good things you see me doing, it's not because I'm a disciplined guy. The good things that you see me doing in my ministry is because I've learned to go to the throne and get grace. It's all because of grace. 
It's the power of God to change me and allow me to live. So I can stop saying, well, that's just who I am. You know, I'm Irish, I'm British, I'm whatever, I'm stubborn, I'm German, I'm Norwegian. No, I'm a Christian. I'm in Christ Jesus, receiving mercy, receiving grace to be a son or a daughter of God. And as I'm in this book, I see what God has laid out. This is how my sons and daughters behave. God, that's not how I'm behaving right now. I need grace to act like your son. I need power to do this. And all the while, I don't have to walk around with this woe is me, put my head down, don't look me in the eye because I'm a terrible person. We're all terrible people. But for the mercy and grace of God. This is why we have to work hard to enter that rest. That's what he says to us. So we've got to fear We have to fear that we might miss it. And not just that we might miss it individually, but look what he says, corporately. You're gonna see this corporate connection all through the book of Hebrews. We should fear that one another might miss it. Not that we should go around pointing out each other's sins and flaws all the time, but we ought to walk hand in hand, arm in arm with people, with grace and mercy and love for one another, making sure we each don't miss it. This has nothing to do with pointing out other people's sin right now. It has everything to do with coming alongside them to make sure they don't miss this. When they don't have the strength to go to the throne room, it's taking them to the throne room on their behalf. It's literally taking a moment to pray with them or pray for them. God, I know this person is struggling and they don't even have the strength to pray today. And so I am bringing them before your throne right now. Pour mercy out in their life. That's intercession. That's what we've called to do. That's what Jesus is doing right now at the throne of God for us. That's what he's calling us to do. We work diligently to enter this rest. This is a war. It's not gonna get easier. In fact, as you read the, the New Testament, as the day draws nearer, it's gonna get harder and harder. Men's hearts will fail them. Their love, the agape love of God in their hearts will grow cold. We'll be lured by the cares and anxieties of life. We have got to fight against this. We've been given everything we need. And it starts by going before that throne of grace, clinging to what we know is true, coming before that throne to receive the mercy and the grace that we need. It's really that simple. We make it so complicated. And it really is this simple. So Father, I thank you today for this plan of salvation. I thank you that even before you formed the world, God, you saw all of this. What what an amazing design and plan that you have laid out. That all throughout the Old Testament, you, you began to show hints and foreshadowings of what was to come. You began to show us how imperfect the sacrifices of blood of bulls and goats was. How imperfect it was just to put the Ten Commandments on a wall and expect us to be able to live those out. You showed us how imperfect it was for one guy to go up on a mountain and hear a word and come down and give it to us. You showed us that all of that is flawed. Also that when Jesus came at just the right time, we would see how far superior this way is. Jesus, thank you for willingly coming to this earth just to express how much you love us. You came as a representation of our Father. 
He doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't want to bring judgment. You came not to condemn the world, but you came to give the world life. You came to offer salvation, hope. You came that we could enter into the rest that those in the Old Testament never could enter into. You became the author and the finisher of our faith. So Holy Spirit, I pray for that that healthy fear in our hearts today. In ways that our hearts have become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In the ways that our hearts have become hardened by hearing your word and not doing what it says. In the ways that our hearts have become hardened by the pressures and anxieties of life. Holy Spirit, right now across this room, soften our hearts. Restore a healthy, godly fear to our lives. That we would make every effort to enter into that place of rest. That relationship with you that you that you died to give us. That place where we, we make every effort, but yet we rest. Where we don't do it in our own strength, we do it because we come before your throne and we receive mercy and we receive grace, the power that we need. And above all, Holy Spirit, help us to cling tightly to the truth of your word. Help us to cling tightly to what we know to be true. Those things that you taught us and spoke to us. As we close this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me. In just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over you and uh, allow you to be dismissed. And as I was praying about and thinking about how to end this service today, I didn't know quite exactly how to end it. But if you want to spend some time and you want to come to the throne of God, I want to open these altars for you. And if you're here today and you, maybe you need fear again, a healthy fear. If you're here and you're overwhelmed by fear, you need to come and and just find mercy and grace. You need a healthy fear or you know you've become lazy with the word or indifferent towards the word and you're not making every effort. Maybe you've let go of some things that you know to be true and you need to reattach and cling to those. Maybe you're fighting against condemnation or guilt and shame. You need mercy. I just want to invite you from where you are. As I close in prayer, I want to invite you to come. There's nothing special about the front of this room, but sometimes we have to take a step. And as it says, come boldly before the throne of our gracious, our excessive God. And let him give you mercy Let him give you grace. If there's an area of your life where you need grace, you need that empowerment, 
to act like a son or a daughter of God again. Come and find it. If you need prayer, I'll be here in the front. Uh, Pastor John will be here. We'd love the opportunity to pray with you. But I just want to give you that chance to come before his throne to find what you need. And so, Father, again, I thank you for that way that has been open for us. Help us never to take for granted the access that we have to your throne. To think that the creator of the universe invites us to come into his presence. Jesus, you'd understand our weakness. And when we come, you don't condemn, but you offer mercy and you give us grace. And so I pray for each of us today that we would find that which we need, the mercy and your grace. So God, I pray your blessing over all of those that are here today, that you would bless them, that you would keep them, God, that you would cause your face to shine on them, that you would be gracious to them and give them peace. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If you need to be dismissed, uh, do it quietly. Let this be a place of prayer for those that want to spend some time in prayer. Uh, God bless you as you go today.